Friends, we have a very special episode of the Citizen Stewart Show today, our podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I am your host, as always, Chris Citizen Stewart. I'm the chief influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. I'm also here with my co-host, Ravi Gupta who is a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Today's very special show is we have a special guest. It's Gary Rubenstein, who is an award-winning math teacher at Stuyvesant in New York City. Gary and I have history. We had once been sparring often on Twitter, going back to 2015, maybe even 2014. And, you know, I was on one side of the fence with a lot of reform type of commentary, and Gary was on the other side of it. He was in the business of debunking uh, a lot of what we were saying in reform world. So this was a very, I think, good interview and a good step forward to starting a new discussion, a discussion that actually gets us somewhere and is forward-looking. So, Ravi, how should we set this up a little bit? Yeah, I would just say... If you're a listener and you're a veteran of the so-called like education reform wars, you will find this, I think, a very thrilling ride in some ways because, it, you know, we are figures who were at various stages kind of prominent figures in these fights. You know, I was fighting down in Tennessee and Mississippi, but at various points, the national debate in favor of charter schools, standardized testing, accountability, takeovers, things like that. Chris, you were there as well, and you were a champion of of a lot of other reforms as well over time and, and had, were way more active in the sort of Twitter sphere and Facebook and, and, and writing and trading essays and barbs with people. And Gary was very much the anti-reform guy for a long time. And, you know, we were all in these, this business of personal attacks, substantive attacks, mixing the two, not often knowing where you were. And I never thought we would see the day where we would be having a cordial discussion with Gary Rubenstein. And it's honestly an emotional experience coming out of this interview. So if you're like an inside baseball ed reformer, you will get a lot out of this. If you are not, I want you to stick through this because I think this is an example of two things. You listen to this podcast because you care a lot about education. I think what you will learn here is that these movements that were at war are in the middle of working some things out. I don't want to overstate it, but we're in the middle of starting to find more common ground. That's really important as somebody who cares about education. You should know that and hear what it sounds like. I think number two is that if you're just a branch person, you listen to our different podcasts, you often hear the left-right discussion. Like last week, you will have heard me and Ricky have a very spirited debate over Hunter Biden, for example, right? But sometimes what it means to branch out and extend the olive branch is within coalitions. Like I would imagine Gary and I are have both voted Democratic more than not, but we have been on the opposite side of some fierce debates. And what you will hear amongst the three of us is, is a genuine attempt to understand each other and have a respectful but very pointed discussion. And for that, I'm very grateful. And it's one of these interviews that makes me Really excited to do this work, Chris. Like, I really loved this conversation. And so I'm just grateful for the people who listen to this podcast and support our work and, and allow us to have these kinds of conversations because it's one of those moments where I'm like, damn, I'm, I'm just so grateful to do this work. I agree with all of that. And without any further ado, let's go right into the interview. Interview. 
Well, let's jump right in. Gary Rubenstein, thank you for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. You know what kind of made this happen? First of all, I went back and I checked. I invited you to be on the show. I just want to say, for the record, a couple years ago, and it wasn't time. It wasn't time to talk then. (laughs) But you wrote this blog post recently because you were doing research about the podcast or just about the way that reformers views have been evolving and that led you to like check in on me which you hadn't like seen for a long time or heard from for a long time so you wrote a blog post about what came of that and it was very surprising in that you didn't totally hate it i was shocked to <laughs> like be honest you, yeah i was shocked too you know, he like listened to it and he didn't like hate it which was the best part of this blog post I mean, i feel like you gave a balanced kind of experience that you had with listening to the show So let's just start there. We have had history in the past of sparring on Twitter and going back and forth and pushing my side and your side and blah, 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 whatever. Something has changed in the world where we're not all on different sides anymore. The world is a little bit, I think, more conflated. But from your experience, let's just start there. Can you give your experience of where we started and where we are now? Like the difference and the change and the evolution of, of our views? Okay. Well, first of all, I came on the scene in 2012 just to get a a sense. I had gone to a Teach for America 20-year reunion, all excited, and I wasn't feeling comfortable there anymore because I noticed it was very... uh, Waiting for Superman had just come out maybe two or three years before that, and they reenacted. They did a Waiting for Superman panel discussion, and and I'm just watching all this stuff going on, and I heard some things that I knew were untrue. And I was just feeling like weird. And I, I leave that convention and I started doing some, some research. And I wrote my first sort of controversial sort of education reform skeptic blog post, which was about a, a charter school, Urban Prep in, in Chicago, that had 100% of their seniors, you know, got into college. That, that was the headline. And I researched and found that, you know, 100% of the seniors might have, but, you know, it was only at 50% of, of the freshmen who had started three years before. So I started writing this stuff, these blog posts, and it got the attention of Diane Ravitch. And she said, wow, this is amazing. We, we you know, can you do this for other schools? I said, I guess so. You could send some over, you know, and I start becoming for this. I didn't even know that there were these two like sides of these reformers and these reform critics, but the reform critics really needed a data guy. And that, that, that became me. So I would get emails from various people. How about this school? How about this school? Sometimes they would say, how about this district? I wasn't getting paid for this. I, I'm just a guy. I'm a teacher. So I became this sort of Grinch sort of guy who would cut down. In my mind, I was an investigative journalist who was revealing the full side of a, of a story of where there was PR. So you and I started sparring a bit. I felt like at that time you were maybe saying, okay, so you're saying that, you know, poor minority kids aren't capable of learning. You know, you're saying that this school isn't as great. Urban prep. What's wrong with urban prep? You know, what are you saying? Those kids aren't, you know, capable. And I I never saw it in, in that way, whether those kids were capable or not. I actually didn't have any basis to judge really one way or the other. You know, the data I had was that this school had, you know, 185 freshmen in 2007, you know, and had, you know, 94 seniors in 2010. And I was just subtracting, you know, so, so you and I would go back and forth. I mean, I felt there was a little bit of wrestling in there. That's how I felt that you and I were a bit, you know, 
I know that I'm a real nice, non-confrontational sort of guy in the real world. And when I listen to your podcast, I see that you are a pretty reasonable, nice guy also. And that's what prompted me probably to write the, the post. It was really nice to, to see that. But it's fun to mix it up. It's fun to people to cheer you on in a Twitter war. And you and I stopped sparring. Basically, I stopped doing my debunking of these charter schools, mainly because we won, in my opinion, the education reform, that war. There's still battles going on. But, but the big one that I was called in to be the data man on, it's over. Nobody really thinks that charter schools and, you know, getting rid of unionized teachers is any sort of miracle, you know, magic bullet or whatever. And I faded away in in a sense because, you know, once in a while I'm called in, hey, there's another school that came out with this and that. And sure, I still have the Moby Dick of charter schools, which is a success academy (laughs) uh, that I like to chime in on from time to time. But I had a very specific role in the education reform skeptic community and uh, I did it really well. And you had a very big right to say, hey, you know, are you cherry picking, you know, your data, you know, and and what what are you trying to get at? Because it is important. What was I trying to get at? If I really was trying, I've been compared to some pretty bad people that not really specifically by you, but maybe and some other other people that that join in. And I'm thinking, God, I'm a math teacher. You know, I'm just looking at two numbers and saying, no, nah, this school's kind of lying about their, uh, they're beefing up their stats. And that's not good for anybody. There's no way education can be improved in this country if we're taking, you know, PR talking points and making policy out of them. So Gary, this is what I want to go back on. I want to tell you how I experienced exactly what you just said, like through that time, just quickly. So I think maybe it was 2014 or 15 when I came on more, less of the Minnesota scene and more on the national scene in terms of doing commentary. And at that time, my one goal in life was to find schools or find places where black children were succeeding because I felt like we studied failure too much. And I felt like that everything was negative about black students and about black children. And I wanted what I called like to close the belief gap because I know that black kids can learn and I know that there's there's proof of it. And I know that there are educators proving it every day in different areas, different places. And I wanted to tell those stories and collect those stories. So this is where it's like, I think the first rub with you and I was here. I am in believing in what I call the achievement gospels. And the good news is that black kids can learn. They really can learn. And we have to stop saying their race and their income actually doesn't makes their brain not elastic, you know, makes their brain not capable of learning because I feel like that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've always felt that way on any side. If, if we talk about this is a group of children that deserve, I think, and I've always thought, I've thought this for years, and I was one of these students, like, you know, coming up, growing up, where I think we think too little of them. And, and because we do, it in, impacts the way that we teach them. It's the, it impacts the way that we talk about them. You know, like, like the whole thing, and you've probably seen studies like this before, if you tell a teacher that this is a, a classroom of gifted kids, and they're really not gifted the teacher still treats them like they're gifted. And because of that, uh, the outcome is different than if you tell them that these are struggling students, even if the students aren't struggling, that that presents a different. So I wanted to close that belief gap. And 
I would put out these things on certain schools and maybe I was a little bit too buoyant. <laughs> maybe I was a little, bit, a little bit too happy when I would find some of those schools, but it wasn't a political reason that I was wanting to tell those stories. It was more of a social and maybe a social political reason of, of like proving that black kids can. And you just talked about what your role was then. It was to debunk these very schools that I was looking at as sources of hope right? Sources of being able to tell a better story so that educators would start looking at our kids as capable and stop talking about their failure all the time. And I think one of the biggest kind of rubs that you and I had was with George Hall Elementary, a district public school in the deep South where the teachers decided to do something totally different in their school. It wasn't a choice program. It wasn't a charter. It wasn't any of that. It was a straight up regular district school. And because of the the decisions that they made over a year, when they took control of the school and, and they kind of redid everything, rejiggered everything, it did increase the the outcome. And I think you wrote a piece that was like, let me go take a look at this miracle school. And the word miracle just set me off, man. Because it was like, does it really take a miracle to believe that you can change a system or change the way you teach and that it would have these kind of outcomes, you know, with this, with this group of poor Southern Black kids, right? Anyway, so that's my whole kind of framing of the story, which is, it wasn't even really, I think, a lot of cases about you and me. And what we, it's just that we had two different jobs we were trying to do, right? And my job still to this very day, like you mentioned urban prep, to this very day, my job still is to tell stories of success about black children and disprove the myth that they are somehow deficient and can't learn, right? That's my motivation. Like, it's really not about proving that small government works or proving that one political party over the other works. It's not about any of that. It's just about America has a long history of not believing in black people and black children. And I think that has affected the way that we teach this specific group of kids. I want to say one quick, one quick thing, just for the record, I believe black children can learn a lot. But secondly, you know, that word miracle, which uh, has different like connotations, you know, in, it's, it's actually meant in the context of the so-called miracle, uh, miracle drug, which is, you know, if someone comes up with a miracle drug for cancer because it doesn't work and it's sort of sarcastic, that doesn't mean that it would take a miracle to cure cancer. It just means you haven't found it yet. So it doesn't mean that it requires an act of God, but I could see how it, it can be read that way. But go go ahead. It's quite an experience seeing you two together. And honestly, it makes me really happy because I think we've all exhausted ourselves over the past you know, 20 years or so, for me, at least 15 trying to do our best, honestly. like, And I think what you wrote, Gary, in your piece, and, and you and I, I think, messaged back and forth a little bit after, struck me because I think one of the things you said, you had such a generosity of spirit about the pod, and then you said, look, like there was something said about me as a teacher, and that really affected me because you know, I think when I go back to when I started Nashville Prep, our first school, and then were public schools, there's so much, you know, whether it's Ravish, who I've never met, but has written about us a couple of times, or people like Amy Froge down in Nashville, who was like a constant foe of ours, and Will Pinkston and a lot of these people, it's like they were, the attacks were very personal. And I, I'm sure they will say this. And I mean, Ravish wouldn't because I haven't really talked about her a lot. But like, they would say the same about me. But I can only say this. I went down to Nashville. I moved to a city that I didn't know a single person. And I took an Ivy League law degree. I could have made a lot of money. And I went down there because I truly, truly believed in helping children. And I gave, I worked my heart out 
And yes, we did get great results and they weren't fake results. We didn't cream kids or anything like that. I knocked on doors throughout public housing projects. I begged families to stay. And anybody, you can find a, a long list of people who have a lot of things to say about me. I worked them too hard. We grew too fast. You know, I was an arrogant young asshole, all true. But what they would never say is I didn't love children and I didn't work really, really hard to ensure even the toughest of kids stayed in our school as long as they could. But a lot of those people I mentioned suggested and sometimes outright said the opposite of me and also questioned my motives, called me a profiteer and all that. And so I want to start by saying, and, and you personally, you and I, I don't think have ever gone back and forth. I just Googled it. I don't, I don't have any knowledge that you and I have. But I just want to start by saying I was struck by what you wrote because I don't think... I don't want us to, like, we're, we're past the personal attacks at this point. I think what we could stipulate, too, is that unless we have good reason, we all got into this work because we care. I sound like such a squishy person. I don't know what's happened to me. But it's like, we did this because we care. And I just want to stipulate to that because I, I, have, I don't have a history of fighting with you or anything like that. But like, honestly, like, it takes a lot of, like, for, for, for all the time I spent down south and all that, there's some of these figures that I got in these fights with who it takes so much work to see the humanity and these people who are on the opposite side of me. And I think one of the blessings that you and I have, Gary, is that I don't think we've gone back and forth. So I actually think it's probably easier for me to see you for the person that you are who really wants to get do right by kids. So that's that's my starting point. That's what I was thinking of. I know it sounds squishy, but I just wanted to start with that. Well, you should know that I've done Tennessee and Republic was not on my radar as a uh, school that I ever heard talked up to like an unreasonable way or false claims of how it's doing. Before coming on, I almost said, maybe I should see if I could do a dive into Republic. And I did not because I'm a little bit. Uh, I mean, it would be complicated, Gary, because I left in 2016. And if I'm being honest, my last couple of years, we went from one school to six and we grew too fast. Our schools still were producing good results as I left, but it was a fast growing organization with a bunch of young people who are hanging on to the spaceship as it was going into the stratosphere. And there are a million different things that would do differently. I mean, I could do a hundred hours on what I would do differently. And I think I can only do that now with the hindsight of like letting the ego go of the work, you know? And I think that's like a good probably segue in some ways to say, and, and I, I'm very proud. I just saw a bunch of my former teachers at a wedding and we're so proud of what we did, but we also look at it like, wow, we were crazy. And I think that's a good, good context to talk about Teach for America, which I think is your segue into this, right? So Gary, you were, you were a core member, right? And then you became a critic of the organization. For our audience, I think probably helpful for them to understand that journey, Chris, if that's cool with you, just to, to understand. People who have listened to the show multiple times know how I feel about TFA. I'm a core member that never served. And they know how I feel. <laughs> Here we go. I think I'm in between the two of you, if I'm being honest, because I did have a positive experience with them at one point. Yeah. So Gary, touch this one. Yes. So I um, was part of the second ever core of Teach for America. That's 1991 for those people who know their history. 1991, I was brought to uh, Houston, Texas. I went through their second ever institute. Now at that time, there were no alumni. So we were trained by very good people. They brought in veteran teachers. Who else are they going to have? They didn't have alumni yet. And training was very inconsistent. You know, some people got to student teach every day. Some people only got to watch. Anyway, uh, that was 1991. I went to Houston, Texas. I taught at sixth grade middle school. I almost had a nervous breakdown my first year. 
you know, people talk about, oh, the hardest thing in their life. I still suffer, not even to be like funny, you know, you would laugh at this if I didn't say it first, but PTSD from this experience. I mean, it was really bad for me. Now, my training wasn't like so terrible, but it could have been better. There are certain things that I realized after my first year, oh, if they had only told me, you know, this thing. So then I saw second year, I transferred to a high school and I did really, really well. I stayed at that school for three years. I was teacher of the year at that school my fourth year and had a really good experience there. But as far as Teach for America went, I became this guy who you really didn't want to be around at the like Teach for America cocktail party when the new people come in because I would pull them aside and say, listen, if they told you this, this is what you do, you know, on the first day, don't listen, you know, do this instead. And people, oh, really? Okay. Well, after my fourth year, I started working for Teach for America. And after that year, I was not asked to work there anymore. But they said I could do a workshop. So for the next 18 years, I think, 15, 18, I would go and do a one night only workshop where I would fill in all the gaps of what they hadn't taught properly, the hour that I just wished that someone would have told me. And it was like, it was pretty crazy. You you know, the standing room only, you know, uh, it was like a rock concert. I'd go in, you know, and do my thing. And people would write me, you know, I learned more in one hour than I learned in five weeks or whatever it was, seven weeks at that time. And what, just so I get an example, because I love to geek out on this kind of stuff, like what are some of the kind of things that you would get a particularly positive reaction to that you were training people on in that workshop? Well, I guess the, the main point was as a new teacher who's nervous and scared, and you give this advice to people, like when they're like trying to like go to a bar to like meet people, you know, about fake it till you make it, about how do you portray yourself as competent you know, and you're a good teacher, you're an actual teacher, you know, how do you portray yourself in this way so that the students give you a chance to even teach them? Because if they don't even give you a chance, because you're up there and you're stammering and you're trying to be too funny or you're trying to be too nice, or, you know, if you're at a school where every teacher's wearing a tie and you're not, you know, I basically said, you want to look and act and teach like a, like a teacher by, by, by what the students expect a teacher to look, act, and teach like. And if you could just do that and give them some success, you know, after the first week, if they can like do well on a test, and maybe that test is, you know, not the hardest test in the world, but it's a test that these kids who maybe never succeeded so well on a test, and maybe they don't know it wasn't the hardest test in the world, but it wasn't demeaning, you know, it wasn't trivial, but it was a test on a thing you taught them. And if they could just succeed and you give them back that test and then they'll believe in you, you know, they'll, cause they, they, they want someone, they want to have a real teacher. And then you can start loosening up. It's almost, I mean, I guess the shortest thing, you know, they say, don't smile till Christmas. It's kind of a version of that, but it was very specific and it had a lot of comedy and tragedy in there as I kind of relived my first year for them about what happens. You did that for 18 years and you did that until what year? Like when did you stop doing that? Uh, I started doing it in 1997 and I did it until uh, 2006. So actually it was it was only nine years now that I think about it. It felt like a lot of- yeah, How do you go from that though to, this is what I find fascinating. So how did you go from that relationship, which it seems like you might not have had the perfect experience, but- Y'all are working together to try to improve the program. Like what happened between then and I, I think you said 2012 is when you become like a public critic of Teach for America. What happened in the intervening years? Well, for one thing, I mean, Teach for America didn't really like this 
workshop that I did, it really kind of undermined some of the things that they were trying to say. Like, for instance, you could say, okay, you know, high expectations. You want to have high expectations. You know, people hear that and they think that that means I need to make this lesson that's way above where my students currently are. And no, if you do that, you know, you do want to have high expectations and then you want to know how to scaffold to get your kids to those to, to that point where you want them to be. But no, you don't start there on the first day because you heard high expectations. Everyone rises to the expectations set for them. That's not even true for adults. I've quit like a, I take piano lessons, you know, and if someone's making it too hard for me, I'm like, I can't do this. So they didn't like my workshop. You know, they allowed me to do it. But then ultimately... They said, you know, we really don't want you to do it anymore. So that was my first. So I felt I was a little jilted in that way, but that's not what, why I became such such a critic. I wrote several books and my second book I was writing. And as, as research, I was uh, writing these blog posts on this Teach for America blog site they used to have. And I was testing out, you know, my material of what the advice was. And suddenly I started becoming a... <laughs> I don't want to, I'm very like, I feel like I'm a humble guy, but I was becoming like a, a folk hero in Teach for America in this underground blog thing where people, they shut down the blog site now, you know, they, they had to. Everything I did, I kept causing, you know, controversy. But then I just got rid of it. I said, forget it. They don't want me. I don't need them. Wait, just to understand that, because I'm still listening and I'm like, did it, you did Teach for America. You did workshops for them. You write on their blog. <laughs> it wasn't their blog. It was a third party thing. Oh, that was I like see. Four. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure because I'm like, wow, this sounds like the greatest relationship ever. <laughs> Let me jump in on this just for one second and say, Gary, the first time I saw you in person, the first time I saw you in person was at the TFA 25th anniversary that they had, which was a big deal. And I was new to all this. I was new to that too. It was this big, spectacular thing. I mean, TFA has like 50,000 or something core members or whatever. And at that 25th anniversary, it felt like all 50,000 of them were there. I mean, they rented out a Coliseum. They had Janelle Monet come in and it was the first time I saw Memphis Lift. They came out on stage and it was a big spectacular thing. And then there was you. They gave you a room, a big room, a ballroom to have a TFA haters club. <laughs> Is that true, Gary? It sounds like they are really good to you for somebody who's been criticizing. All the critics of TFA were in that room. These were all like people at the TFA conference and in that room. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, this is the funniest thing ever because TFA gave you a ballroom. They gave you eggs, bacon, two kinds of bread, multiple kinds of coffee, juice, apple juice, orange juice, whatever, like a spread. And I'm feeling like how ironic this is that TFA has this big of a forum that they have a room for everybody and they've got like, and in this particular room, it was all the people that actually really wanted to hear your message. Right. But this is the first time I see you in person and I'm just like thinking, wow, this guy is actually somewhat of a TFA success story. So I don't get it. Like you went into teaching, you became a great teacher. You're now an alum. You taught other teachers for years. You've written books. You've got notoriety or whatnot. I'm sitting here on a podcast right now with you and with Ravi. And I can tell you, I can have a million other podcasts like this and not know that I'm talking to alum oftentimes. And this is my thing about TFA. I know so many, like when Ravi talks about his mission statement, why he was doing what he was doing in Nashville, but he was being attacked by people 
that are not at all accountable for any children on a day-to-day basis. I'm just desirous of black and brown children in in poverty doing well and having people that care about them and drop in and do whatever they can for them because it's like all hands on deck. America has done very poorly at this. So that is the reason that I have been so bullish on TFA is because many of the caring people that I know who actually have been building something over years and, and working on the thing that I care about most happen to be TFA people. Right. And that came from a point of ignorance of not knowing very much about the organization when I was coming into all this. But it just turns out I meet so many people like you and Ravi and others that have these long stories about teaching and things that they've done for the very kids that I'm like enamored with with helping. So I just want to point that out. Like you're kind of a success story, you know. So between that conference and the one that I went to with the Waiting for Superman, you know, panel discussion, which was five years earlier, that's when I had my awakening. And then I realized hmm, Teach for America has been given, you know, this power, but they're not using it correctly. And in a sense, they are hurting the poor minority kids because if their policies actually get implemented based on lies, it will set us back. So I saw them as a damaging, as a damaging force. And that's where I went off and I wrote a blog post called Why I Did TFA and Why You Shouldn't which got you like at least 50,000 views. You know, they had me on NPR to talk about it. Fast forward five years, there's the 25th. So the 20th, I'm just a regular alumni who's like, wait, what's going on here? But in that five-year period is where I became the blogger and the miracle school debunker and such. And a debunker of research about Teach for America, that sort of thing. So I told them ahead of time, I said, you know, I'd really like to, I think I should be on a panel of some sort and they said, okay, great, but it's too early. So don't, don't ask us now. Email us again in six months. Six months later, I emailed them again. So uh, about that panel, I'm following up. Oh, you know, it's too late. They're all filled up. Okay. Well, then someone else, a woman named Amber Kim, she got permission on the very last day after the conference is over. The, the conference ended on Sunday. And there was one last thing. There was the Sunday for those people who haven't already left, whose flight is going to be at like uh, noon because they're not taking the 8 o'clock flight. From from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., they hosted a thing that was called Critics Not Haters. And they probably didn't expect so many people to come to it. But it had a pretty good showing considering the time slot. Let me say this, Gary. You just wrote a multiple-part series on math. You're a math teacher with many years experience teaching at a high level, teaching math. I care about the fact that math is not always culturally relevant and it's something that I wanna know how we do better. So I read your five part series on math because you're a math teacher. Now asking you about charter schools is a little bit about like asking the GOP about trans people, right? I don't necessarily wanna ask the GOP about trans people because I know how they feel about trans people and it's not gonna be anything productive if I really wanna understand trans people. And that's the way I feel like asking some of you guys about charter schools or reform, it's not the flex. The real flex is you are a math teacher who has taught math for many years and you have something to say about it and you've, you've won awards and you, you, know, you do have something to say about it. I feel like that is the point of productive forward movement for us because I think we need to be talking about that specifically. We're talking about politics right now, but I want to be talking about advancements in education. I want us to move to a new stage, and and I'm as guilty of this as forever. I I had my armor up like everybody else for years, and I, I wouldn't hear anything other than what I wanted to believe for a long time. And what I want to do is I want us to open up to have a genuine dialogue where we're open to changing our minds, right? Like a good example is 
and we can go on and on and, and we've done on the show sometimes like of like the legitimate criticisms of the stuff that we have believed and even some things we continue to believe but that have real problems that need to be resolved but also valid points that some of our previous opponents have made and sometimes continued opponents like a good example is in the piece that you wrote like you wrote about charters and about how a lot of them are not like waiting in line and doing the traditional assistant principal principal role and all that and i think i do understand that i think like but part of the issue is i think for a lot of people who who would have wanted to be principals it's like the, the process is often very political. It takes forever. It often involves certifications that have nothing to do with how good you are as a principal. And then the reward is often that you become a principal of a school where your hands are totally tied by the bureaucracy and everything else about running a school. And then you have this alternative option where you could be Julie Jackson or you could be Ben Markovitz. You could be these people who you know, in their late 20s, when a lot of people do their best work sometimes, right? Like some of the best starters of companies and athletes and artists and nurses and doctors have done their best work, that they're able within a few years of entering the profession to ascend to heights where they could do that work. And and the downside of that is that some people who are a little too green and haven't put enough time do it. And then we have to weigh that against each other and have a good debate about whether that's worth the trade-off or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's like a good way to maybe have that conversation. Like, and, and it doesn't mean you have to believe that it's worth allowing people to ascend that fast, but that, that it's not as like simple as like, it's just bad. You could understand why like some of us, not out of some sense of like arrogance, but out of a sense of urgency, but also like a sense of pride of ownership, right? Like you wouldn't want to start a restaurant and be 20 years of waitress, right? Like yes. you'd want some predictability to get to that and have full autonomy once you get there to really design something that's really beautiful that you think actually helps kids, you know, and that the trade-off is look, how much autonomy you give, how do you vet those people, how much time do they need, who makes those decisions, like those are tough calls, you know? Yeah, that was in 2012 when I wrote that, so in the last 11 years, my view has evolved more like charter schools are fine, just don't put out a press release making it look like 100% of your students got into college when it was only 50% and the other 50 went who knows where, you know? like This is where you're going to make me go crazy, Gary. You're making a different argument than what they're saying. They're saying 100% were accepted and it's absolutely verifiable and it's a true point. You can make another important point, which is, hey, okay, that point is true, but I want to add to the discussion. That's different though than saying like they're lying or they're whatever... School districts like to trumpet what they do well, and we're always in the business of trying to put our best foot forward. Whether we're a traditional district or a regular school or a principal at a little magnet school or whatever, we're always trying to put our best foot forward and not demean our staff and ourselves and beat ourselves up all the time, right? So them saying 100%, I get it. But uh, you know, I guess I would just say, you may see it as important uh, to challenge those critiques, but at the same time, it's going to look odd if you never challenge those type of things within your own system, the system that you do prefer and the system that you do like. So it's got to be balanced a little bit. Gary, I'm actually, it's not that I'm hardline. I just have complicated views that I'm still, I'm still grappling with if I'm being honest. But here's where I, I agree with you is that if it were just about our results, Chris, I 100% agree with you. And there are actually some leaders who just stick to like, hey, I'm just proud of my kids. What we were doing for so long though, was saying we got 100% look down the street at this shithole that isn't doing that. And honestly, there were some shitholes down the street from my school, but I didn't need to 
bake the data to make that point. I, I There are more honest ways to make that claim. Now, I didn't get to the point where I was there with my seniors, like making those arguments or whatever, but I was entirely capable of that kind of stuff. Not because I was dishonest, but because I was in the battle mode. I'm like, ah, data, whatever. And I, like, I, I'm not doing the sophisticated analysis to say, well, how many of our kids dropped out? I'm not pushing them out, but how many of them just thought it was hard or they moved or whatever? And was I backfilling? I, I have been an aggressive proponent of backfilling. I've argued with a lot of people from the success people to my but truly to everybody about how all charters need to backfill until the very last day of school, just like a district school, et cetera. But when you start to add that stuff together, of the stuff we were doing in the movement for a while, some schools still do, but they, but I think the charter movement has evolved a lot along the lines, Gary, that you, I think would be happy with on these discussions is like, okay, hundred percent college. Like we need to examine that because, and Chris, we've talked about a lot about that. We also need to, what does hundred percent mean? Is hundred percent of the kids who started with you? Are you backfilling? Are the, are the classes growing? Are they shrinking? Are they growing and shrinking in proportion to the district schools around you? Or you're shrinking a lot more? Like, are you down to 20 kids? You know, and it's like, and then you come out the other side and then you say, all right, like, let's be proud, but also let's interrogate the data and get better. And also let's be really careful when we're juxtaposing our data against others. Let's not be afraid of it. Like, cause it's important to make that contrast, but be honest about it. Like, don't oversell it. I agree. I, I agree with that. Be fair. And to me, fair is like, as a school board member, I can tell you this, the contract alternative schools in our district, their numbers would swell right about testing time. Why do you think that was happening? Where were those kids coming from? But nobody ever wrote a story saying that, hey, a couple of your best high schools in your city actually are offloading kids to contract alternative schools right before testing time every year. It was never, I never heard pro-public education people address that particular fact, right? But you and I should be talking and having hour-long conversations like this and podcast. We should be having whole conversations about math. Right. Like these these podcasts should be about what are we going to do about math or even the topical stuff like, you know, me and Ravi went back and forth about is California doing woke math? Well, it turns out there's a lot of research based on what they're doing out there and it can't be reduced to just being woke math as if it, it doesn't come from somewhere. But it's at least the conversation we should be having. Yes. Well, you know, those posts which I can refer people to on my blog, I really after all my years of blogging and fighting, and a lot of people said to me, you know, you, you know so much, you're so smart. What do you think could improve education? Because I believe that all schools can improve. I never thought that district schools were, were perfect. I've taught in six different, five, five different schools and every school I've been at, I sit there sometimes and say, I can't believe this policy is happening, which is making you know, me that much, that much more, it's an obstacle in my way to accomplish helping my students. So I teach math, you know, and I said, I really want to get it out there because math in this country is disaster. It, it accomplished nothing. It's, you can't believe, I mean, you guys are both really smart guys. And if I said, what's pie? Just this was simple. This is this is like asking somebody in English, you know, what, you know, is this adjective, you know, what is superfluous mean, you know? If I say what's pi besides 3.14, what would come into your mind just to like what would come into my mind? This is what it, this is seriously what would come into mind and this is a great point to make on this on this show. What would come to mind is what I wrote last week 
in one of my dispatches called Verbatim. And in the beginning, I talked about math anxiety and how many parents actually suffer silently in about math anxiety, that there's going to be this moment where your kid brings home something and you look down at it and you go, oh my God, you have crossed the, th- the threshold of when I'm going to be able to help this you. This is a filibuster, Gary. He doesn't know what pie is. No, no, no. No, because like, no, 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 no. This is like real. This is real because I'm talking to my real people who listen to this. Like I'm talking to my real people. I miss some math concepts in school. And I recently, like two weeks ago, I actually joined Khan Academy's new AI tutor on math. So I am now going through all the math programs that I missed like in school year by year by year now. And I'm actually like walking my audience through. A couple of years ago, I made a 12-part video series that's 10 hours altogether. And it goes from kindergarten through 10th grade math. I sat down and I said, here's what is really going on in these things for parents, you know, during the pandemic was the idea. Ravi, I'm going to give you, what's pi? It's a constant that uh, gives you uh, the, if you hit the circumference and the diameter, um, it's a constant that gives you, it's a ratio of the the circumference to the diameter. You use the constant to find out one or either of those two things, mathematical constant. Is that correct, Gary? Well, let me ask you this question. If the diameter of a circle is 10, What's the approximate circumference of that circle? You said if the diameter is ten, what is the circumference? Oh, I don't know the I don't know the actual formula off the top of my head. Sorry. By the way, you guys should not feel any shame whatsoever. But this is for your listeners, really, really. It, this is uh, it, it's interesting to me because when you hear what it is and all, first of all, you were exactly right when you said pi is the ratio of the circumference of the diameter. Now, some untrained you know teachers not with so much experience might say, "Wow, hundred percent." That is the definition of pi. The, the circumference of this circumference to the diameter. But then you ask a very specific question. Here's a circle with diameter 10. What's the circumference? Well, when you say the ratio from the circumference to the diameter is pi, which is at 3.14, that means that the circumference is 3.14 multiplied by whatever that diameter is. In other words, it's a little more than triple. So it's those 31.4. But it's funny how you could, this is where with like standardized tests, you would do well, but no, I'd much rather a kid can get the answer right and supposedly understand it. Well, I think that's a that's a building block, by the way, to how we would see schools, right? Because a lot of what we're trying to do is try to get to moments of certainty in a in a sea of of uncertainty around kids and their outcomes and everything, and like a big battle for reforming. Like a lot of what they're trying to do, and certainly what what I tried to do in schools is combine the art with the science to say, all right, how do you build a school where you allow for the serendipitous moments, the times of play, and like the times of free expression with the moments of of certainty where you know, hey, this kid comes in today and I've, you know, to your your seven-day test or your five-day test that you get to teach for America, how do you ensure that at the end of that five days, the kid has done something that you can show them that they've done and that you can predict that they've done? And that tug of war is the tug of war between reform and non-reform. I don't like any teaching that doesn't result in a kid at the end knowing the thing. And I cannot be convinced, but yes, look, you know, they actually do understand. On the other hand, I believe, you know, you guys talked about a school that had 0% kids uh, passing math. I wish, and it's funny because these are actual human beings, these, these, these kids, they're, they're people that we could, if, if you just, if, if I were to sit with one of those kids from a school that supposedly has zero kids understand math and we were to like video it, I guarantee you with my series of Socratic sort of questioning and, hey, what do you think of this? And here's a puzzle for you. You'd say, 
that kid knows math. And we'll end on this point because this was something that you wrote about in your blog post. This is like something that, you know, you called us out on. And my response, my quick response to that is that, yes, you are right, that what we said, though, was different than that. We said that zero kids tested proficient in math, which is an absolute true statement because that's what the, that's what they were tested at and that's the way – it's a term of art for that test, right? What you just said can also be true, that if we did some other form of inquiry with them, we might discover that they have hidden talents or native abilities that aren't being found on that test. But what I would say back to you is, but you wouldn't need to do that with a class – a bunch of white kids from the suburbs, right? So if a test is bad, let's just say the test is bad, but still we had to see it to judge it. But if we're going to say that the test is just bad, we still have to make something of the fact that there's a lot of kids passing it, even though it's a bad test. And this one specific group, like you should even be able to pass a bad test, I guess is my point. Or an incomplete. If all the white kids are passing this test, even though it's a bad test, even though it's a, a crappy test, let's just say, I actually want that test to work equally well <laughs> for, for black kids and white kids and everybody else, right? And, and, and perhaps the test is good. I'm always, when I hear like none of the eighth graders could pass, I'm always wondering, they don't do this either. What if you gave them all the seventh grade test? That would be interesting. You know, like, what if you gave them all the sixth grade test? So maybe they're two years behind, you know, but like, it'd be interesting to see, because we, we have this all or nothing thing. They either passed or they didn't pass. And sometimes if a test isn't designed to, to like ramp up and have like little things, you don't get enough information. It's just, oh, you, you know, you failed this test. But okay, Gary, I just want to say like, we should continue talking. Yes. And the other thing I want to ask is to the extent there are other people out there who've been veterans of this war, Chris, I know you're deep into this and you've been talking to a lot of people. I want to have more of these conversations. It could be on our platform or others. I'd be happy to go to somebody else's platform. I just think these are important conversations because, you know, this is the Rocky Four moment. If, if I can change and you could change, everybody can change moments, which is like, look, we're never going to see eye to eye on everything. But I actually think we're in this moment where you talked about AI, Chris, like this is the Game of Thrones. Zombies are coming over the walls. Like there's so much change happening out there that is totally separate from the fights that we've been in, that if we can actually start to come together and be focused, like, and, and actually trade ideas, challenge each other's ideas, create a new phase here where the temperature is is lower, but our focus is as extreme as it's ever been and our energy is as high as it's ever been. And maybe our energy gets higher because honestly, it was soul sapping to do it the way we were doing it for so long, to fight as long as we were fighting and to put on that armor every single day. It was hard to carry, honestly, for all of us. I was personally exhausted. It is past and it, it was very, very hard for me, because when I got into it, I am the kind of person who like gets little like hobbies and little crazy ideas. I'm going to turn all my old videotapes into DVDs, you know, and I get excited and I like do it, you know, and I get into it. And these hobbies, these fads, you know, usually peter out after like six months. I finished the project. When I started writing, you know, the blogs and getting into the Ed Wars, I didn't know it was going to be 10 years. It exhausted me. It, it took a lot out of me. Do you know, there's only like, there were only like six or seven of us on the other side in the sense like- Yeah, I would love to talk to these people because honestly, like it's the only way to heal and move on. Uh, honestly, like, and I feel like you, you, Gary, from what you're saying, I, I feel like you're carrying a lot on your shoulders too on this kind of stuff. And it's the only way, you know, like I think if the, as much as we can offload our resentments and 
and really focus on a vision forward, even though maybe the concentric circles only overlap a little bit, but whatever that overlap is could be really helpful and important. Well, I know that my team, my side is going to be, number one, they don't know I'm doing this podcast. No. And if if I were to, if this were a live podcast and I were to put something up on Twitter, join me live, I'm going to be with uh, with Citizen, Stuart, Ravi, people would, would say, don't go. <laughs> but I, I knew a little more because I've also listened to Chris's podcast, the old one and the new one, you know, it's episodes. And, and I knew that we're at a time where maybe we could, uh, like you said, with Rocky Four, uh, band together and, and, and all change a little bit. Although I haven't changed. I, th- I think Chris has probably changed more than me as far as coming closer to the middle. However, I'm the extremist per your blog post. <laughs> I, I like you. You live in New York City? Yeah. Where are you in New York? We can grab a drink sometime. I'm on the uh, Upper West Side and I would absolutely go out for a drink. And look, like the thing is like a lot of these people, I don't know them personally. And like we could have a whole conversation about like some of the legitimate critiques of like the the sort of elite mentality that some of us have been like there's a lot to talk about. Like and I don't want to be totally defensive of everything we've ever done. There's a lot. And if you listen to this podcast enough, you'll hear enough of it come out. Um and we're pretty honest. And I also want to say like the modern ed reform world is very is way less brittle than it used to be. Like we're able to work together with a lot of the foundations and other people who'd been involved and actively critique them, actively critique their work, um, but do it out of a sense of like, a, a sense of desire to do better. Like there are often conversations I have that are actually not charitable to people who've given us money in the past. And the old ed reform movement would not have been able to handle that. The new ed reform movement is listening and being like, oh yeah, like we need to continue that conversation. We need to talk more about that. And I think that is a, I don't even know if we call it ed reform anymore, but whatever it is, it is way different, way more diverse, way more open to criticism. And also I would say more splintered in a way that allows for that kind of debate. It it has its own challenges. For sure, because there's a big left-right divide. There's a there's a left-center divide. That's right. They there's a to. racial divide. There's a lot of divides, but there's opportunities as well. I would say. So what I will say, you know, at the end of the show today, is that we should keep having these discussions, and we should do our very best to start directing them towards the thing that matters most, which is teaching, learning, how to do education, the how of education, and what our kids need. Like what our kids need to actually get across the finish line. Gary, you said in this podcast, you said you really do care about like, you know, whether or not the kids got it, like and acquired it at the end or whatnot. I can't think of anything I care about more, right? Because I feel like them not getting it is the difference between economic exile when they are older or being stratified and marginalized continuously. I believe that what we get right or get wrong in this actually changes lives. Like it actually changes your position in the United States. So I just really want to get the conversation back to how do you teach and how do kids learn and what's the process? And you teach a subject where I think we're, I mean, we're talking about science of reading and a lot of other things, but you teach a subject where I think we're eventually going to get there. But we're still not even having a national conversation about, you know, kids also have to be able to compute. <laughs> they don't, you know, they can read. That's great. But there are different literacies. And, you know, reading is one. But math is kind of very important, too. So please come back. Absolutely. Well, if one day you want to have one just math and no 
politics, uh, although math even has politics. So I would love to talk math one day. I could talk about math all day. I want to do it. So we're going to make it happen. And to, you know, our other friends, we have now had Beth Lewis from uh, Save Our Schools in Arizona. We have Josh Cowan from Michigan. We've had Gary Rubenstein today. Open invitation, Dr. Ravitch, open invitation, Dr. Burris, open invitation to come on the show. We need to start talking across lines of difference. And this was another example, I think, of it happening. So thank you, Gary, for coming on today. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Robin, Chris. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You've been a great sport, man. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 